Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. The book of Hebrews and chapter 2. <clears throat> And we'll read in verse 17, where the writer says of Jesus, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This morning we began to look at Jesus as the perfect man of faith and one of the reasons why the apostle or the writer here tells us that he had to be made like us in all things was that he might come into this world and live as we live and live a life of faith, trust and confidence in God and the promises of his word. We see in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 that the writer says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The things that are spoken of are those things that are promised in the word of God. And by the very nature of God's promises, they are things that we can only hope for now. We do not now possess them. We cannot see them. They are invisible things. And so... Faith gives us the assurance that we will one day have them and the conviction that they will come to pass. Faith assures us that the God who has spoken in his word, he cannot lie. He will fulfill every word that he has spoken. Our confidence in him will not be disappointed. And though we must wait, though we must wait now through the trials and the tribulations of this present life he will bring every good thing to pass just as he has promised and he will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could even ask or think faith looks through the turmoil and the confusion of this present world to the unseen god of heaven who sits upon his throne of sovereignty over all things, and faith believes that he does always what is good and right in everything that takes place. And though we cannot understand his ways at times, faith rests upon his great love, his power, his faithfulness, and faith gives us calmness, and tranquility in the midst of all the uncertainties and the fluctuations of this life. And faith enables us not to be overcome by the anxious cares, even when all around us are filled with fear. And faith upholds us under disappointments so that we do not sink into despondency and faith gives us strength of soul that we may endure when everything seems to be against us. And faith enables us to persevere in the way of obedience. 
Jesus had to live this kind of faith, trusting in the promises of God as all his people must do. Psalm 22 and verse 9, Thou art he who dost bring me forth from the womb. Thou dost make me trust when upon my mother's breast from his very first days, Jesus trusted in God. And the only source of his confidence and trust in God was in the word of God. Faith, he grew in the knowledge of God and he continued to recognize his own identity as the Holy Son of God. And his faith was tested, especially in those temptations in the beginning of his public ministry. Each temptation was, in one way or another, a testing of his faith. As we continue our study in Jesus, the man of faith tonight, we look here in Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 11 through 13. And here we read for verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he, that is Jesus, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. It is Jesus who speaks in these Old Testament quotations. And we see in the beginning of verse 13 that he says, I will put my trust in him. The words come from Psalm 18, verse 2. And the whole verse reads, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, God my rock. And then here is the quotation in him I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. And throughout this passage here, Jesus speaks of himself after his incarnation as a man in his oneness with us in our humanity. We see in the previous two verses that he speaks of us as his brethren at the end of verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. And in the beginning of verse 12, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. And then in the second half of verse 13, he says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And in verses 14 and 17, he speaks of the writer speaks of his incarnation when he took our humanity to himself. Verse 14, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. And in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So in verse 13, when Jesus says, I will put my trust in him. He means, I will become a man and I will take my place among my brethren so I will be dependent upon my heavenly Father just as they are and it will be necessary for me to live the life of faith, 
to trust in God in the same way that they must do. He had to become incarnate if he was to live a life of faith and trust in God. God cannot trust God. He has no need of anything from any other. Only weak and dependent humanity can trust in God. And Jesus is saying in this passage, I will be made like my brethren in all things that I might live the life of faith and I will put my trust in him as they must do. I will put my trust in him. This is what will characterize his entire life. This is what will show him to be a man like us in all things. That in all of his distresses, in all of his troubles, in all of his cares of this life, he will depend, he must depend upon his heavenly father in the weakness of our humanity for all things as we do. He will be a man of faith whose only refuge will be in the Lord. And he will need to look to him for all things. And only in the Lord will he find the care and the protection that he will need. I will put my trust in him. As we return to this subject tonight, we want to return to this theme of Jesus, the man of faith. We continue to look tonight only at his faith in his time of ministry. Lord willing, next week we'll look at his faith in his death. But as we look at his faith in his time of ministry, we want to return to the temptations of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, where we looked this morning, we want to return there for some further thoughts tonight. In Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not, man shall not live on bread alone. Luke tells us here that it was just after his baptism that Jesus was now tempted by the devil. The Father had just declared out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And in the first temptation, the devil questioned the word of God. God said, Thou art my beloved Son. The devil said, If you are the Son of God. An assault on Jesus' mind to raise doubts, to raise unbelief over the word of God. If you really are his beloved son, and if he is well pleased in you, as he says, 
then how can it be that you suffer in this way, in this most deplorable condition of hunger, weakness, being famished 40 days and 40 nights without food in the howling wilderness? If you are, as he says, the Son of God, and he is well pleased with you, then how can you be under such affliction? And why does he not show more favor and more blessing upon your life? It was a temptation for Jesus to be discontent and unsatisfied with his lot in life as if his heavenly father had not given him all and would not give him all that he needed. As if the devil said to him, you have said, I will put my trust in him. But now look at what your trust in him has done to you. And should you not give up your trust in him and trust in yourself and in your own strength and what you can do and turn this stone into bread. And this temptation of the evil one against Jesus is the same that he brings against us. He assaults our minds with doubts when we come to the word and the promises of God. He raises questions he raises questions by his powerful darts against us over the truthfulness, over the trustworthiness of the word of God, trying to create unbelief, trying ultimately to cause us to give up our faith and our confidence in God and in his word. Jesus was the eternal son of God. We as believers are the sons and the daughters of God by adoption. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, John says, that we should be called the sons of God and such we are. But we find ourselves in times of suffering. We find ourselves in darkness and trials and sorrow. And the devil comes with the same temptation to question our identity from the word of God. If you, if you truly are a son and daughter of God, and if he so loves you as he says he does, then how can you suffer affliction and distress such as has come upon you? And how can you find yourself in times of suffering and grief? If you are really living according to the word of God and seeking to please him, then why is there not more favor, more blessing upon your life? And why do you experience such trial? and tribulations. Look at your life. Look at your life, the devil says. Look at your life seeking to obey your heavenly father. And look at what it has done to you. 
Look at the troubles that it has brought you into. Would you not be better if you gave up your trust in God and went and lived after the lusts of the world, after its wealth and money and its pleasures and its things? Would you not be better off giving up your faith? Come, come, he says, and follow me, and I have many good things that I will give to you, and I will give them to you right now. An assault on the mind of a Christian, the same assault that Jesus experienced is what we experience, a testing of our faith. Will we wait? Will we hope? And have confidence only in God and what he says and what he has promised us in his word. Jesus answered the devil in verse 4 with those words from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He went to the word of scripture and he answered the devil with the scripture. We may answer him as well with other scriptures. When he comes to us and says, if you are a child of God, then why are you suffering as you do? We may answer him from Romans chapter 8, where Paul says that the spirit the Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that I am, I truly am a child of God. And then the apostle says, if a child of God, then I am an heir also, an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, if indeed I suffer with him in order that I may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. When the devil comes and says, how can God do any good in your sufferings? We may answer him from Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, that we may be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. When he tempts us to give up our faith because of our trials, We may answer him from 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, even though now, for a little while, for just a little while longer, in this short period of time, in this life, if necessary, I have been distressed by various trials. But the testing of my, the trials are the testing of my faith, that the proof of my faith, which is more precious than gold, 
even though now being tested by fire, it will be found in the end to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am being protected by the power of God through faith, and I am headed to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for me. Or we may answer the devil from 1 Peter chapter 5. I know, I know who you are. You are the adversary, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But I resist you. I resist you firm in my faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by my brethren who are in the world. And after I have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called me to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The testing of our faith is the same as the testing of Jesus' faith. Will we continue to trust in our Heavenly Father and live by faith in his word, or will we turn to some other way that is contrary to the word and will never bring us to the full enjoyment of the promises? Jesus always chose the way of faith and the way of faith is the way of suffering in this present life. And he is our example to follow him in this way. When we think of the trials and the sufferings of Jesus, we often focus on certain events, those temptations at the beginning of his ministry. Or we think of the agony of Gethsemane or the death of the cross. But the whole life of Jesus was a life of suffering, a life of humiliation, dangers, sorrows, troubles. His days on earth were a continuous confluence of the greatest difficulties which could ever come upon a man, a convergence of anxieties, afflictions, hardships, distresses, and difficulties. A life of tribulation. We see it in the Gospels, the many failures and disappointments with his disciples. The unbelief of his own family, his brothers did not believe in him the opposition of his enemies, the rejection of the religious leaders, trying to trick him with their questions to bring him into some contradiction in his answers that they might have reason to accuse him of blasphemy or to bring charges of sedition against him before King Herod. We see him in danger on so many occasions when he would go up to Jerusalem to the feast and his enemies would seek to seize him and put him to death. We see his sorrow at the grave of Lazarus. 
We see the lowliness, the humiliation, the poverty of his life. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was a statement of the true life of Jesus. The foxes, they have holes to rest in. The birds, they have their nests in the trees. But the Son of Man who came down from his throne in heaven is in such a state of lowliness, humiliation, and poverty in this world that he has nowhere to lay his head. Never did a man face such troubles and distresses as the Lord Jesus. No wonder Isaiah called him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faith, their face. In all these things, his faith, his confidence, his trust in his heavenly father was severely, severely tested. He was tempted with unbelief. He was tempted to turn aside from the way of faith from the way of suffering. But never once, never once did Jesus ever waver in unbelief. The heart of Jesus through all his sufferings was, I will put my trust in him and I will always cast myself upon him for my care and my protection and all my comfort and we are to follow him in this same way. And if we do, we will find the same blessed end as he did. We can turn to a couple of examples in his public life of ministry. The first we'll turn to is to see his faith in his public life. The first is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, I'll read verses 25 through verse 34. And Jesus said, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life, as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worthy, are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubic to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus here, he teaches his disciples, he teaches us about being anxious, about not being anxious, we should say, over the necessities and the things of this world. And he spoke these words after his temptation by the devil. Back in the beginning of his ministry, in Matthew's gospel, he records it back in chapter 4. Jesus gave these exhortations in this passage because he had learned them by his own experience. He had been in great physical need. Forty days and forty nights in the wilderness without food, on the verge of starvation, and the devil came to him and tempted him that his heavenly father would not meet his needs. But he trusted in his heavenly father. And in his father's time and according to his father's will and in good providence, every need of Jesus was met. And so now Jesus can say to us in verse 31, Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves or of any other need that we have in this present life? And at the end of verse 32, he can say, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But then he tells us what the priority of life should always be. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and the promises all these things shall be added to you. That's what he did himself by faith. He was always seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteous ways, and these things were added to him. So these words of Jesus here, these are not pious platitudes. These are not idle words. These are words that were born out of his own experience of true hunger and need and everything being met by his heavenly father. These are words that have been tested in the fiery trial of his own life in which he proved the faithfulness of his heavenly father to meet all of his needs. And so Jesus speaks them here to us and we may have confidence that as his heavenly father met his needs, so he will meet all of ours as well. Another way in which we can see the faith of Jesus in his heavenly father in his earthly ministry is found in the gospel of John chapter 6. In John chapter 6. In the early part of the chapter, Jesus multiplied the loaves and fed the 5,000 men with 
the women and children that were with them, and the multitude, the great multitude, they rejoiced when Jesus could fill their bellies with food. And then they began following him. They followed him around the sea to the other side of the sea, and they found him. But then beginning in verse 32 and following, Jesus began to speak of himself as the true bread of God, which comes down out of heaven to give life to the world. We see in verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Down in verse 41, we see that they began to grumble at his words. In verse 41, the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And as Jesus continued his discourse here, they continued to grumble against the things that he was saying. And they, they said, these are some hard sayings. Until finally down in verse 66, they were not following him anymore in verse 66. And as a result of this, and as a result of his words that they regarded as difficult words, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And then in verse 67, Jesus turned to the twelve as if they were the only ones left. Verse 67, and Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? A very great trial here in the ministry of Jesus. A great multitude, a great multitude had just been following him. But now they had left him. And all that he seems to have left was his 12 disciples wondering if they would not leave him as well. He turns to them and says, you do not wish to leave me also, do you? Things were not going well. Things were not going well for Jesus at this time of his ministry. He had come to build a kingdom he had come to gather in a people to himself into that kingdom of mercy and grace and salvation. And many would say to him now at this point, Jesus, this is no way for you to build that kingdom. And even Jesus seems to be a failure at this point. Has not his heavenly father promised him in the Old Testament scriptures that he will have a seed more in number than the stars of the heavens? But where are they now? Where are they now that he stands on the side of that lonely mountain seemingly abandoned by the multitudes? How will the promises of God be fulfilled in him now? Can we not hear once again the temptations of the devil against him just as in the beginning? If you really are the son of God, if you really are so pleasing to him, 
then how can you be so abandoned by so many? And where is your kingdom that you have come to announce and to build? Do you not remember? Do you not remember, Jesus, when I showed you all the kingdoms of the world? And I promised to give them all to you if you would just bow and worship me. But you have been trying to build your kingdom. You have been trying to build your kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. And you have been trying to build your kingdom by speaking truth and hard sayings to men. And look at what has happened to you now. Come and follow me, says the devil, and do things my way. And I will show you how to build a glorious kingdom in this world. But it will not be the kingdom of his heavenly father. And it will not be the kingdom of truth and light. And Jesus refused every temptation of the evil one against him. And he continued to trust in his heavenly father throughout this entire trial in this passage. We can look back to verses 32 and 33. Jesus speaks of his heavenly father in a most trusting and confident way throughout the passage. In verse 32, he says, Therefore, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He's looking back to the Old Testament times when in the days of Moses, God sent the manna from heaven, but that manna was only a symbol of he who was to come. And he is the true bread who has come down out of heaven now to give life to the world. In verse 37, he says, all that the father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. My Father has sent me, he says, from heaven. And my Father will still be faithful to me. You may not believe in me, but my Father has given to me a people from eternity, and every one of them whom my Father has given to me, they will come to me in faith for salvation, and I will not cast them out. Verse 43 and 44, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come except my father draws him in. And when my heavenly father draws one in, my heavenly father's drawing is effectual and is powerful. And they will all come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. 
Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, my Father has promised me a kingdom, and he will fulfill his promise to me. And he has power and grace to teach everyone of his elect people whom he has given me, and everyone who is taught by him will come in faith to me. Down in verse 57 and 58, Jesus says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which has come down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. So throughout this passage, throughout this trial in the life of Jesus that was so filled with disappointment, with discouragement, with apparent defeat and loss, Jesus is unshaken and he continues to trust in his heavenly father and he speaks of him with great confidence that his promises of a kingdom will be fulfilled. He is the bread of life who has come down from heaven to give life to the world. And though his labors seem in vain at this point, his heavenly father, he believes, will never fail him and will fulfill every good word to him. The next way we see the faith of Jesus is in his life of prayer. The Gospel of Luke tells us many times about the life of Jesus in prayer. At his baptism, while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And his father said, Thou art my beloved son. He was praying as he came up out of the water in his baptism. Luke chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus would often slip away into a lonely place and pray. In chapter 6 and verse 12, the night before he chose his 12 disciples, he was upon the mountain the entire night in prayer. Luke tells us in chapter 9 at the mountain of transfiguration that it was while he was praying that the appearance of his face became different. And so this is how we see Jesus in the Gospels. He is this man of prayer. And there is a very close connection between faith and prayer. The person of faith will always be a person of prayer. Faith finds its expression in prayer. Faith sees God as the sustainer and the giver of every good thing. And faith depends upon him always. And faith must go to him in prayer. The object of faith is God. The object of prayer is God as well. 
and the two are hand in hand and can never be separated. They will always be together. Faith is dependence on God and dependence on him is seen in prayer. We can turn back to the book of Hebrews and we'll just note uh, several things as quickly as we can tonight in Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11, this great chapter of faith. The writer says in verse 6, he says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And right in this verse, there is this connection between faith and prayer. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, he who comes to God in prayer, he must come in faith. Faith is the only way to come to him in prayer. He must come to God. He must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, of those who seek him in prayer. In other words, by faith we believe that God is a personal God who hears the prayers of his people when we come to him and when we seek him, and he is the one who hears and answers our prayer. Faith and prayer are together. We also find this relationship between faith and prayer in this book here of the book of Hebrews. So often we've seen this morning that faith is central in the book of Hebrews. Faith is central in the book of Hebrews, but then in this very same book, prayer is central as well. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, we are able to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we draw near to God in prayer by faith. We look back to chapter 10. Chapter 10 here in the book of Hebrews in verse 19. He says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Confidence to enter the holy place in worship and in prayer by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus alone, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith that our hearts, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In verse 22, we are to draw near. How do we draw near with a sincere heart? We must draw near with our sins being washed away from our conscience. We cannot draw near holding on to our sins. How? We can draw near by the full assurance of faith. It is the full assurance of faith that enables us to draw near to God in prayer and is that full assurance in the blood of Jesus 
as he mentions in verse 19, that we are able to enter with confidence into the holy place. So faith and prayer are together. Faith in the blood of Christ enables us to draw near to God with confidence in him. And it was the same with Jesus, though not faith in his blood, but faith in his perfection of holiness, that he could draw near to God in prayer. That God is a personal God who hears the cries of his people. It was faith in him that awoken Jesus every morning to go out to a lonely place and find a place of prayer. And this is what we find here in Hebrews chapter 5. Back in Hebrews chapter 5. And verse 7. In the days of his flesh, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able, to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. In the days of his flesh, in the days of his human life on earth, when he was made like his brethren in all things, in the days of his weakness and his dependence upon God, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears, which speaks of the occasion of his most extreme anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he began to see as never before the cup of God's wrath against our sin, which he had to endure on the cross. And the horror of that ordeal was so overwhelming, he entered the garden and he went a little way beyond his disciples and fell on his face and offered up prayers with loud crying and tears, still with faith to his heavenly father in the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, my father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. He still trusted in his heavenly father as he was in such great anguish in the garden. And he said, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done, my heavenly father, because I trust in you and I know that your will is always good and perfect and it is only the right way to live and to accomplish your will. Thy will be done. Trust, faith, and confidence in his heavenly Father. Verse 7 continues. He cried to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his complete submission to the will of the Father. He was heard not by delivering him from the death of the cross, but at least first by upholding him to endure the cross, as Luke tells us, an angel descended from heaven, strengthening him 
And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The faith of Jesus was seen in his life of prayer. The man of faith, the man of faith in God was a man of prayer. His faith was seen in his life of prayer. And so he is our example in this as well. And what was true of him must be in some measure true of us as well. If we say that we believe in God, then our faith must be seen in a life of prayer as well. Believing people will always be praying people. It cannot be any other way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught the characteristics of those who are in his kingdom. And one of the great characteristics he taught in that very first sermon was in regard to prayer. Promises of prayer, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. And in that same sermon, he told us where we are to pray. He said, but when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. Promises of prayer. And then in that same sermon, he taught us how to pray. In the pattern of the Lord's prayer, pray then in this way, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he gave us the six petitions of that prayer. So much did Jesus believe that his people would be men and women of prayer that he spoke those things in his very first sermon that he preached. If we do not pray as we should, if we are men and women who have grown slack in prayer, then we need to pray and ask God to revive our hearts in this blessed duty and privilege. If we have grown cold, if we have lost the practice of prayer, then we should regain the discipline and the labor of it. If we believe in Jesus, then we must find some time each day in the midst of the busyness of this life. And we must not lose heart, but we must form the good habit and enter into our closet every day to meet with him and in secret cast our cares upon our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus did, no doubt. The Bible says that we are to cast our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. We are to be anxious for nothing but in prayer and supplication. We are to make our requests and petitions with thanksgiving made known unto God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That was what Jesus did in his life of faith and prayer. 
And that's what we must do as well. And we will have the benefit of it and the strength and the grace we need in the Christian life. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word tonight. Thank you for your beloved son. And thank you that we may look to him in every way in the Christian life. That we may find him to be the man, the perfect man of faith, who trusted in you in all things. O Lord, help us as well. As we are so often anxious, we are so often troubled, and we easily are distracted and turned aside from you. We pray that you would help us and make us like your beloved son and have great mercy upon us that we would trust in you in all things. So we thank you now. We pray that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.